Snickers taught us all a valuable lesson. You're not you when you're hungry. But who are you when you're lonely? If I asked you that in 2019, you may not have known the answer. But after months of social distancing, remote work, and no travel, most of you listening have probably learned a lot about loneliness in the last year. Before COVID-19, 60% of Americans said that they experienced some degree of loneliness. What do you think it is now? Loneliness is dangerous. It changes us, darkens us. It's even bad for your health. Researchers have likened the health consequences of being lonely to that of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Isn't that crazy? Being lonely is literally as bad for you as smoking, and not just smoking a little. But what if I told you that loneliness isn't just hurting us individually? What if I told you it was hurting us collectively? What if I told you it was responsible for polarization, division? What if I told you that it was tearing our country apart? That's what the American Project argues. The American Project is an initiative put forth by the Graduate School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University. Their goal is to imagine the future of conservatism in a communitarian way. If you're not sure what that means, our guest today, Pete Peterson, is going to break it down for you. Pete is the Dean of the Graduate School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University and the co-chair of the America Project. We're going to chat with Pete the future of, and talk through the future of conservatism, what loneliness is doing to our country, the effects of PC culture on society, and what he thinks we should do about all of that. As always, you're listening to Moderate Party. I'm your host, Hilary Lombard. Let's get started. My guest today is Pete Peterson. He is the Dean at the School of Public Policy at Pepperdine University. Pete, how are you doing? Great to be with you, Hillary. Doing well. Excellent. So before we get started, I just want to give the audience a little background on you. Can you give us a brief overview of your professional background? Sure. As you said, I'm currently the Dean of Pepperdine's Graduate School of Public Policy. We're a, a two-year master's in public policy degree program. Our students go off into various areas of the public sector from nonprofits to the government. Prior to that, I headed up a, an institute here at the policy school called the Davenport Institute for Public Engagement, where I still serve as a senior fellow. And prior to that, I headed up a bipartisan nonprofit called Common Sense California, which was also focused on civic engagement, working across party lines, focus much more on state-level policy here in California. I was reading your Los Angeles Times endorsement from when you ran for Secretary of State. <laughs> oh, yeah. I ran for Secretary of State back in 14. Yeah. But they described your commitment to civic engagement as almost evangelical in its <laughs> passion, commitment, and optimism. So I think that's definitely reflected in your background. Well, yeah. I mean, that certainly was another lens into politics. Obviously, we'll be discussing that today to a degree, but running for statewide office here for Secretary of State back in 2014 was a real window into partisan politics and also to get a sense of how you communicate messages around civic engagement and citizenship in a way that people on the left and right and center can understand and, and maybe attract them. And so while obviously we weren't ultimately successful in that race, still much of my professional life, I remain committed to those principles. And I mean, we should say that while you weren't ultimately successful in winning statewide office, you did put up a very impressive showing for a Republican in possibly the bluest state, give or take <laughs> New York. So, I mean, one of my questions for you is you're a Republican in California. Are you a glutton for punishment? <laughs> Well, I was born in New York and, and grew up in New Jersey. So, and obviously we've been out here in California now for about 15 years. So I've lived in nothing but blue states really for, for most of my life. And I, I'm not a glutton for punishment, but at the same time, I think this discussion around how we can operate across party lines is something that has been a big part of my life, especially these last 15 or 20 years because I have been a political minority. And unless and until you've 
been a political minority, whether it's in your individual community or your family or or your state, it it does demand a certain set of communication skills and an ability to listen, but also finding ways to communicate your own principles in a way that at least others can hear you. They certainly won't or may not agree with you. But I think what's so important about the work you're doing through this podcast, Hillary, is that we're obviously at a place in our country where we've we've given up listening, much less being able to persuade or or argue for our particular points of view. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been really enlightening pursuing a podcast about politics from the center, because the more that I dig into it, the more it seems like the only thing that the two sides agree on is how much they don't like each other and how much they don't think the other side likes them. So it's like, I mean, it's not without agreement, but it's not the kind that we are looking for. (laughs) Exactly right. And I I think that that I was just watching a, a Zoom presentation by a friend of mine who's on faculty down at University of San Diego. And uh, he was talking about how polarized we've become. And, you know, the the Pew and Gallup polling around not just our political divisions, but how we view the other side, this this thinking that we that the other side is is a perspective, not just not to be listened to, but to be demeaned. And this, again, comes from both sides We're we're seeing those levels of a scale and scope we've never seen before in this country. Obviously, we've had very polarized time in the times in this country, but without a major war, and even before COVID, these these issues, the lack of civility, the lack of consideration for others, I would argue the the hyper tribalism that we'll hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about the American Project work. These are these are distinct and unique in American history, and something we we all uh, need to be very concerned about. So before we dive into the project, which I'm very, I'm chopping at the bit to get to, how would you, just for our audience, describe your political ideology? Because I think you're a tricky one. Yeah. Well, I'm not trying to be tricky, (laughs) but I would describe myself as a communitarian conservative in that I hold to standard conservative principles and positions on limited government. That being said, I free and fair markets, very much of a, I guess you call free market conservative. But the communitarian lens for me is the importance of of civic and organic institutions in providing identity and affiliation. So everything from the family through civic institutions, civil society, the importance, frankly, of private sector institutions but again, I would say that there's a general aversion to big things, whether that's big government or big business. Mm-hmm. And uh, thinking about things more from this perspective that sees identities formed organically by our connection to various institutions and the importance of defending them from a policy and, and legal standpoint. So do you think that the current Republican Party reflects traditional conservative values? No, I, I would say that what's happening right now, and, it, and it's lending itself to the polarization that we're seeing, is we're entering a phase of realignment politically, where the political parties, namely Democrats and Republicans, are changing. And what is driving this from both the left and the right is populism. I'm going to simplify this probably too much, but on the right, there's a a populism that sees big government as essentially being the problem. And on the left, there's uh, there's a populism that sees big business as the problem. And there are two different reactions that come from that. I believe there's actually crossover in populism from the left and right when it comes to issues like trade policy and mm-hmm. even some areas of foreign policy. In fact, I think one of the very interesting data points going back to the 2016 election. So many of the Trump and Bernie Sanders voters actually agreed on many principles around foreign policy and trade policy. Yeah. And so you you do see some of those places of, of crossover. But with that, I think at least under Trump, you've seen a, a political realignment that has shown that there's more of an attraction to 
middle and lower middle class voters, certainly more of an ethnic diversity that we're seeing on the right, which is counterintuitive, but nonetheless demonstrated in, in the two, 2020 results. And again, the appeals there are made to some of these populist themes. And of course, we're, we're seeing this on the left as well, where a Bernie Sanders or an AOC are major influences in that party. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're beginning to see certainly more of a, a progressivism, a progressive populism on the left. Oh, boy. And I mean, they are having it out in the press yeah. right now between the moderates and the progressives. Yeah. yeah. OK, so switching gears into the American project, can you give us a brief introduction before we get into it? So the American project actually kicked off in the wake of the 2016 election. In early 2017, we initiated this effort at the policy school here at Pepperdine to gather academics, activists, and uh, policymakers from across the right side of the spectrum to explore the future of the conservative movement, understanding that with the Trump victory, many of these questions had been really thrown into the public sphere. And it was actually when we gathered here in the spring of 2017, it was the hardest thing that I've ever done professionally. We had really across the spectrum on the right representatives. We had hardcore libertarians from the Cato Institute. We had social conservatives from Heritage. We had more kind of free market conservatives from AEI. We had neocons and paleocons on the foreign policy spectrum. And while I have my own beliefs and feelings and perspective on what I believe the future of the movement should be, um, trying to be a good facilitator of this group which at least initially was around 35 or 40 people, I really had to bite my lip and just try to, in an unbiased way, help to facilitate a long weekend of conversations. And at the end of those three days on Sunday, where we resolved was a place that I never, I never saw coming, which was this consensus, if not unanimous understanding that the issues we were facing politically were simply a manifestation of cultural issues. But to put a specific title to it or or label to it, that that cultural challenge or societal challenge was this pervasive sense of loneliness and alienation. In the last four years, it's amazing across disciplines, uh, from economics to social psychology, how much more we know about what's been called an uh, loneliness epidemic, obviously exacerbated now by COVID over these last few months. But it's been our position then, and I, I believe since it's only been further proven, in eras of loneliness, we as human beings will always seek affiliation and membership. Mm. And if we're not able to find those, what we call points of connection in in the sources that have always been available to us as Americans, again, to go back to these kind of communitarian sources, I think what we've seen is loneliness driving tribalism. On both sides of the political divide? Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And what that looks like on the right is there's a tribalism of politics, which at its most toxic and poisonous is very much of a racial identity, an understanding that America never really had any great faults or things that, you know, happened so long ago. These things are not really issues we need to deal with anymore. And if you say anything different, it's unpatriotic. But on the left, this this tribalism actually takes two forms, we've found. One is that there's the identity politics that we all know about, which is to say, Identity is found in racial, ethnic, and sexual identity categories. And then, of course, those get expanded when we talk about intersectionality, that we then move from not only individual categories to crossover categories, and they bring in a whole other set of things. So essentially, a genetic basis for identity, I think that is somewhat maybe also counterintuitive, but but very much a part of identity politics. And then on the other side, you see what we call this kind of global citizen view, 
of of political identity, which is one to say that, you know, borders don't really matter. We live in a globalized society. And whether we're talking about economic issues or environmental issues, we really it's it's really too narrow minded to say that America has a unique identity or one that even needs to be celebrated. We really need to take on this more broader conception. And that goes back to Thomas Paine, right? (laughs) This kind of global citizen idea. And so those, as we see it, are the are the three main buckets, one on the right and two on the left, that we're trying to respond to with this different view of political identity that is formed in this uh, communitarianism, which, as I'm sure we'll talk about, has a history both on the le- left and the right. There has been a liberal communitarian movement, and there certainly has been a very vibrant and uh, well-articulated conservative communitarianism as well. I think it's so interesting when you're looking at the two sides of the political divide, how I think that the root, the root cause of everything that they're facing, which I think is what you're arguing, is ultimately the same. It just manifests differently out into their each respective sides of the argument. Like if everybody's lonely, if yeah. I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying we're just dealing with this loneliness differently yeah. and nobody's dealing with it well. Is that yeah. fair? No, I, I, I think that's right. We're, we're saying that the same genesis point leads, it manifests itself politically in two different ways. And again, when we, I, I'll never forget that Sunday afternoon conversation, which was the end of our, that long weekend gathering, just looking over to Rich and saying, I, I can't believe that this is what we're talking about. You know, this was not on the agenda to be talking about something that maybe to some of your listeners sounds just very squishy and amorphous and too sad. light. That's right. Just but sad. It is. But I, I think at the same time, I think what's been really interesting once we landed on that paradigm that as we've gone out over the last three years is that it resonates with people. Like they maybe they've never thought in these terms before, but once we start talking about some of the ways that we better understand societal loneliness and some of the triggers and uh, ways that it manifests itself and how that actually is leading to either complete political apathy, right? That all this politics is just, you know, it's no good. It's just too polarized. I don't even want to get involved in it. Or it leads to a hyper political engagement and always at at the national level as opposed to the local level. Which is not helpful at all. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And but understandable, right? And I think that's that's what's been so affirming over these last few years that the more people that we speak to, and I would say particularly because I do a fair amount of speaking to college audiences. And, and young adults, that this is something they really get. Like they really do understand the loneliness issue. In some ways, the triggers for them are social media and other ways that we use technology as a, as a communication mediator. I think one of the interesting things about the research into this sphere is that loneliness affects almost every age demographic but it's triggered by different things, whether we're looking at the very old who are not able to or do not live close to family or don't have uh, great neighborhood relationships. Just physically, they're not able to get out and participate or the youth who are hyper connected in a certain way, but also reports these very high levels of loneliness and and disconnection. So I think on that note, I'd like to talk about what we're going to do about it. So yeah. I, I'd i like to kind of walk through your report, The Way Forward, and kind of get into what what you're arguing for and what, what that would mean, what that would look like. So I mean, the first one that I wanted to dive into is the idea that America must restore government as a facilitator of civic institutions and that government should be the servant, not the master of the people. Yeah. Can you explain that? Yeah. So I think... This is, I'm speaking much more, and we'll see this as we go through the points. In some areas, we're speaking more to our friends on the right. In others, we may be speaking more to our friends on the left. This is one we're definitely speaking more to our friends on the right, right? He is beloved and, and rightly should be. He was the person that brought me 
into the conservative movement, President Reagan. It was Reagan who said very famously, government is not the solution to our problems, government is the problem. Now, of course, people forget the suffix or the prefix to that statement, which was to say, to say in this, basically in this time and place, this is the situation. But I think where that's been taken by conservatives, and I would argue to my friends, particularly who are libertarians, is that almost government qua government is bad. Explain. That that as an institution needs to be attacked. Now, of course, yeah, I mean, denigrated, right, or dismissed. These governing institutions are an essential part of our democratic republic, right? Whether we're talking local or state or federal. And I've thought that one of the things that the progressive Republican movement, so now I'm going back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, one of the great things that they contributed to our understanding around government is that the question isn't just about big or small. It's about, is government doing what we've asked it to do or not? Hmm. And so the big, small question is not as relevant as A, should government be doing this? B, if so, at what level? And are citizens being given the opportunity to make those decisions, right? And then finally, what role civil society, right? So if we agree that government could do X, but we also agree that a voluntary association could also do it, then I think that the tie goes to the voluntary association. Why? Well, I, I, because I think that provides an opportunity, as we argue more broadly, for connection, for mm-hmm. active citizenship. Dennis Prager, the radio host, says, the bigger go- the government, the smaller the citizen, and the smaller the citizen, the bigger the government. And that's a fairly simple phrase. But at the same time, I, I do believe that the focus, especially in America, has always been towards active citizenship, incentivizing and promoting active citizenship. And so, but at the same time, we need to understand the role of government is important and hold it accountable for what we've asked it to do. So a place that I would kind of, I'd like to press you a little bit is, I think that this assumption relies heavily on our better nature as a society. If government pulls out of some of these areas, which I definitely I definitely entertain the argument that it potentially should because when you have more ownership in something, you care more about it. So like if a citizen is stepping in to solve these problems, they are more invested in the solution. So I definitely entertain that argument for sure. But I think that for that to work, we're relying so heavily on the fact that volunteer organizations would step up and fill that Mm -hmm. gap Mm -hmm. in some of the areas that the government currently does. What or how would you account for that? Well, so I would focus more on the margins. Right. So certainly what and again, this first principle as part of the a way forward document is holding government up as an essential institution. Right. Right. I'm beginning with that premise. But let's let's think about a couple different policy areas. Let's talk about education. Okay. I think that that's an area that has always been a traditionally localized set of decisions and policies. And at the same time, it's been one that's demanded a fair amount of public engagement, Mm -hmm. usually through parents, but also others. I think it's fair to say that the charter school movement and the school choice movement have been two of the more important public generated, public sector enabled movements of the last 25 or 30 years. And... And so in that, I think there's a great example where in some places it's extremely difficult because of regulatory and political environments to start a charter school mm-hmm. or even a, a private school or school choice. In others, it's fairly well endorsed and facilitated. Mm-hmm. I think that that's an area where we really do need to provide space for the public to engage. Now, if that doesn't happen, we we have public sector options. 
But again, as we think about more localized responses and also responses that demand more public engagement, I would rather push that envelope than not. You think about welfare reform in the, in the 90s or and work requirements more broadly. I mean, for decades, those federal programs uh, were fairly weak on work requirements. And mm -hmm. I think what most of the research has shown is that when those kinds of stipulations are put into place, whether it's on social service programs or housing, for example, is another area that you're not necessarily depending on our better angels, but you are calling people to a, a standard that, especially when we're talking about social services and public services, that we've seen over and over and over again, you tend to see better results where those kinds of requirements and demands placed on on the public are put into place, still facilitated by the public sector, right? I'm not completely removing that, but at the same time, calling more from us as citizens. So can you explain like what the role of a facilitator would look like? Because that was one of the things that I thought was very interesting about this finding is that you're saying America must restore government as a facilitator by, and I guess by getting out of the way, facilitate by leaving. No, not at all. So this, this harkens to some of my work that I continue to do at the Davenport Institute for Public Engagement here at the Policy School. And so over the last seven or eight years, I've trained personally about 3,500 local government officials in how to do better public engagement. And I've met hundreds of local and state government officials from around the country. And I'll never forget a conversation that I had with a person who was at the time the city manager of Palo Alto, home to Stanford, and a great guy named Jim Keene. And we were just talking about leadership. He had been in city management for decades. And he said, Pete, you know, the hardest thing to do as a government official is to get a request for a public service, to know that I could do it but to know that other person really needs to do it themselves. Hmm. Now, again, what does that look like specifically? I mean, hmm. I, I think, you know, there's some great organizations out there that are tracking the work of what's basically called public work, which is to say the work that citizens are doing to respond to particular policy challenges. The weaving organization, weaving community, Harry Boyd, who's a friend of mine, he's a professor up at Augsburg University in Minnesota, has researched hundreds and thousands of these mostly localized citizen responses to real problems, whether they be education or parks or homelessness. And so in that, in these individual instances, government, usually local, sometimes state, is still facilitating this, right? In the end, in almost all of these instances, it's not government leaving the scene completely, but there's much more of a balancing between government and civil society or the voluntary sector in delivering a service. And frankly, some of this is happening because it has to, which is to say the governments, and we're unfortunately going to see this in Q1 and Q2 of next year, we're probably going to see a number of city governments go bankrupt. I mean, I, I don't think the shoe has dropped yet, the impact of COVID on city and state budgets. And I think many are just waiting for that next huge stimulus to come out of Washington that's going to refill all these public coffers. But I don't think there's going to be enough to do it, unfortunately. Do you think that the federal government should provide the stimulus to state and local government? Well, I think it's got to be on a case-by-case -case basis. I don't think there's one answer to it. I think conservatives are right to argue that a broad-based stimulus lets some state and, frankly, municipal governments off the hook for profligate spending that they've been doing for years now. And so now we've basically given them you know, a pass on that. And frankly, the states that have been quite conservative, if you will, fiscally, and cities that aren't demanding as much obviously are hurt by that. <laughs> so I think there's got to be uh, much more of a scalpel approach to these decisions than a bucket 
But suffice it to say, I think that the government still as a facilitator, and this happens most, I think, effectively at the more local level, is still a convener of this conversation and will still have a role in many cases in the actual policy solution. That's going to go in order. But since we're talking about (laughs) education, I know that you have quite a bit of thoughts on viewpoint diversity in education. That's part of the finding. And then that's also something I've seen you speak quite passionately on via the YouTube. So (laughs) break that down for me. Well, I first should say that my understanding of viewpoint diversity, which is the, the phrase that describes more broadly free speech on campus, support for minority points of view, whether they're held by faculty or students or staff. In the vast majority of cases, these perspectives tend to be either politically conservative or faith-based. We've certainly seen these issues with people of faith, whether Christians or Jews in particular, have faced challenges on America's college campuses. And in many ways, it flies in the face of the traditional civic conception of colleges and universities, which is a place that have been intended to prepare citizens. And in that, citizens are ones, especially in a democratic republic, who I would say play well with others, can not only understand their point of view, but can argue the others as well. And when called into public service, understand that their point of view isn't the only one. And that uh, in many instances, your perspective plus their perspective equals a third solution. And a better solution. Yeah. If it's vetted by both sides, what you reach is better. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And so I'll date myself to say I, I went to George Washington University back in the late 80s. And I certainly knew, even though I probably wasn't as politically aware, but I certainly knew that that was a more progressive college. At the same time, I never felt for a second that I couldn't speak my mind in class as long as I defended it rationally and intellectually and critically. I never felt like if I wrote on the wrong topic, much less take the wrong quote unquote position on a topic, that it, that my grade might suffer. But when I became dean here at the policy school, I began speaking to students who were coming to us from really good undergraduate programs. And then I go out on the recruiting trail, speaking at colleges and universities. And whenever I begin, begin my talks, I begin with asking three questions. Number one, how many of you in this audience have been dismissed or demeaned by your professor for taking a conservative perspective in a classroom discussion? And invariably, about three quarters of the hands go up. Then I ask, how many of you have felt you've been downgraded on a test or written assignment because you took a conservative perspective? And about 40 to 50% of the hands go up. And then I ask, finally, how many of you have actually changed your major from a social science, political science major to one that is not as politically fraught, right? Business, marketing, natural sciences, whatever, simply because you didn't feel you could get a fair shake or you just didn't want to deal with it anymore. And about 20% of the hands go up. Hmm. And and especially that last one just gets under my skin, right? This, this awareness that kids who <laughs> work their butts off to get into whatever the school is and, and probably did it with an eye towards a particular career goal and didn't feel like they could even finish out their major. That to me is, is not just a problem for academia, that's a problem for America. And of course the American project and the, and the principles that we're discussing and this one particular principle now around viewpoint diversity is again, not seen through an academic lens, but really a civic lens, which is to say, Are we preparing citizens who can understand another's point of view? And what I'm seeing is that what's happening on college campuses now seems to be bleeding out into the public square, where you see people that just who are highly educated just have no idea why anybody would vote for Trump. Yeah, I mean, that's the one that honestly 
scares me the most because it doesn't serve any group in that situation. If people with conservative viewpoints don't feel confident not even taking a stance, but discussing it, or like if they can't even ask a question, then they're going to be pushed to the extremes. And then I think that the majority that remains is going to have ideas that are not tested against anything. Yeah. So we're going to end up with things we can't implement and pragmatism will be lost completely by one side because they are only talking to themselves. You know, that's so true. And again, I would just emphasize it's, it's another reason why trying to focus things more at a community level versus a national level is so important. But there was a really great survey done about two years ago called the Hidden Tribe Survey. It was profiled in a great piece by Yasha Monk in The Atlantic. It was with a, a set of American voters, large group. And one of the major themes that they found, now this was across ethnic categories, racial identities, household incomes, educational attainment, and left and right, was that the one point of agreement was that the major challenge facing us as a country in our political culture was what they call political correctness. This fear that you may say the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong person. And even if your intentions were completely innocent, and even if your fears were overblown, they were nonetheless there. And again, I think it manifests itself in a particular way on college campuses, just because of the, all the surveys have shown that the predominance of not only faculty, but also administrators is more on the left that there's a, an inability to facilitate conversations that are really much more open-ended and, and in the truest tradition of the liberal arts. You know, this ability for us to both learn how the other side thinks and, and understand it, right? I think you know, one of the books that we use here in our program is Jonathan Haidt's The Righteous Mind, which is, I think, one of the best books ever written yes. on, on understanding not only how the left thinks, and he's a, more of a progressive, but how the right thinks. I learned more about how I think as a conservative by reading The Righteous Mind than even how the left thinks. But I think, I think one of the great things about that book was he was he was learning as he was writing, and he was coming mm-hmm. to conclusions that he didn't anticipate when he started the book. And he came to this place where he actually said, wow, you know, I think I, uh, there are actually smart conservatives out there. You know, I'll never, there was a, there's a part in there where he's at a bookstore in lower Manhattan. I'll never forget this passage in the book where he starts reading. I think it was, I think it was Shelby Steele. And he said, I had to sit down after reading three pages. I had to sit down in the aisle because I just didn't think that I would be attracted to this way of thinking. And it was so well put that, that I had to consider it. So getting to that place, and it's not to say that Haidt then became a conservative, right? And that's not what I think any of us are asking for. I think what we just take at this point is just a more civil and understanding public square. And we certainly don't have that right now. On college campuses, I absolutely agree. There is too much of the same opinion. I think if you're ever in a room and everyone agrees with you, it's a problem, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. But I think that one of the things that challenges the conversation surrounding viewpoint diversity is that nobody wants to fight for it when they're the majority. Like, yeah. Nobody's uh, advocating for their opponent's right to say something that d- they disagree with. So I think that when the argument is presented, and I, this is not something I'm saying that you are doing, I actually just want you to respond to it. It's when it is presented, it so often seems like people are trying to protect themselves or their own opinion, as opposed to that idea at large. Like I think about the letter in Harper's where all of the journalists yep. cited it and we're, we're saying yep. it's a problem. Yep. I thought that was a really good step forward, but I think that so often when that argument is made, it comes from people that are from a more extreme place saying that their side needs to be allowed to say whatever they want and the other side needs to shut up. <laughs> yeah. 
So, I, I mean, I think that's a very fair point. And you raised the Harper's piece, which I think is provocative on that note. I think about the Barry Weiss resignation letter from the New York Times, which was, I thought, so disturbing. And so that's another sphere, right? Media is another sphere. We've been talking about academia. But I think this is what was so great and frankly courageous about Haidt, Jonathan Haidt leading this movement, which is this organization that he helped create called the Heterodox Academy, which is now over 2,000, 2,100 academic professorial members that are across the political spectrum. Haidt stepped forward as a progressive mm -hmm. to say that this is not right. <laughs> we, we, we can't have this kind of environment if we're to hold up the virtues of academic discourse and the quest for the truth, which obviously should be at the heart of any academic enterprise. Mm -hmm. It was him stepping forward to say that, in, which in no way would be in his, in his personal best interest. I do think it does take courageous people and in, this, in these instances, whether we're talking about academia or the media, which are so much on the left, it, it does take thoughtful, courageous people on the left to step forward and say, we, we've really lost our way here. The pendulum has swung too far. So is that the solution that the American Project would push for, is that what's required is uh, brave people to come forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what we're saying across the board, but certainly in academia. It's so interesting. I mean, the whole the whole argument is that people or that people need to be brave. The political spectrum is split in two, and both sides are saying, "I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you." You know, I think a particular area that it's exacerbated in terms of breeding animosity for the right from the left is a lot of the social issues. I think that the Republican Party of the last four years or so has become synonymous to those on the left with human rights uh, violation or not advocating for racial justice and mm -hmm. all of the issues surrounding immigration and Trump's hardline stance on that. But what I like in your report is that you're arguing for compassionate conservatism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Obviously, what we're trying to respond to is loneliness. I don't want to lose that thread, right? Yeah. Because, because how that plays out in this conversation is we believe in the importance of finding geographic identity, right? That our identity, that our identity is not just who we are from a faith perspective or you know, what we do professionally or who we are racially, but that we are Americans. And mm -hmm. somebody like me lives in Malibu. And mm -hmm. I think what, what the goal is, at least initially, is to ask the question, well, what does draw us together? And, and then we can begin to have these meta conversations, which frankly, as, as you touched on before, Hillary, we individually are not going to solve the immigration crisis. I mean, we're not going to solve America's role in the world and pulling out of Iraq or whatever. I often quote from Robert Putnam, who most of your listeners probably know, famous for writing Bowling Alone. He wrote a, a journal piece called E Pluribus Unum. And in that piece, he and his team researched 40 American cities and were, was looking at the question of civic trust. Now, what civic, civic trust is, questions like, do you know your neighbor? Have you gone to a local community meeting around a local policy issue? Have you worked with your neighbor on solving a problem or, you know, babysitting their kids or whatever the case might be? Across the 40 cities, Putnam saw an inverse, inverse relationship between levels of civic trust and levels of ethnic or racial identity. Which is to say, in the places that were most ethnically and racially diverse, there were the lowest levels of civic trust. And not just between races, one of the things that he found was even within a particular racial group, say, for example, blacks in Los Angeles, which was one of the cities right here that has the lowest levels of civic trust, there was lower levels of trust within racial categories. Now, there were two places, two places where Putnam and his research found 
a positive correlation where there was high levels of civic trust and high levels of ethnic or racial diversity. And those were Protestant mega churches and Catholic churches. And so mm -hmm. when we talk as conservatives, especially around these issues around race and immigration and so forth, I continue to think that we're gonna solve these, not solve them, we're gonna ameliorate <laughs> these challenges at a more local level as we find more localized geographic identities. Now, what Putnam didn't say, and I'm surprised he left it out, is there's one other place where you see across the 40 cities, most of them, high levels of civic trust and high levels of ethnic or racial diversity. And that's in the support for professional or local college sporting teams. Now, again, I'm looking at this from a purely kind of civic communitarian perspective. If you go to a LA Rams game or my beloved Green Bay Packers, you're going to see places where because there's a higher principle involved, in this case, support for your local team, you will find that spread across racial and ethnic identities and categories. And because that is true, I believe that's only an exemplar into the importance of finding localized geographic identities as a way of bringing us together racially and ethnically. That's not to say we shouldn't have concern about immigration policy. We certainly should. But where are the places where we're going to actually be able to intersect the racial upheaval that we're seeing in the country? I believe it's going to be at a more local level. I believe it's going to be in the role of the churches in particularly cities mm -hmm. as facilitators. I don't think this is something actually government can facilitate well. I believe it really does have to be civil society. And again, it doesn't, this is not the, the single solution, but I believe it's a pathway that we can begin to find resolution. And just to discount that and say, well, if we just solve the immigration regulations, everything's going to be fine. So I, I'm not particularly religious, definitely not an atheist by any means. It just, it hasn't been my bag throughout my life, but yeah. I like, sometimes that makes me sad because I, there's so much community in church. So I think that yeah. ultimately like that even speaks to what you're saying, but how do you foster that level of community that the church brings for people that are not religious? Yeah. So I would say you need to look at a couple things. One is, well, what, what do religious communities do? that help to foster these high levels of civic trust, even in the midst of great ethnic diversity. Mm -hmm. The number one thing they do is they're mission-driven and they point to a higher authority, mm -hmm. right? Now, in so doing, what they, what they would say is, you're not just accountable to yourself, you're accountable to this higher authority. And that taking off the lens of just saying, wow, you know, the, the general selfishness that we all tend toward is not going to work out well here. In fact, it's, it's, a, it's a behavior that is not promoted, supported, or endorsed by almost any religious community that I know. So then you say, okay, well, let's just say it's, I'm not religious. Well, let's find something else, but understand that there still is going to need to be that higher authority. What's that higher authority with the Boston Red Sox? It's the Boston Red Sox. Okay? Yes. And, and so if we're not able to take the lens off of our, or the, our focus on ourselves, this goes straight back to Tocqueville, right? Tocqueville at one point in dem Democracy in America he talks about self-interest rightly understood versus selfishness. Now, what he says back in the 1830s is, here's the problem with most democratic societies. There's so much freedom that people will tend naturally towards selfishness and just looking out for their own interests. Here's what America has done. 
America has such limited government and they place such an emphasis on civil society, whether religions or civic organizations or whatever, that if you want to get anything done, you've got to participate in those. And you realize that you can't get stuff done just on your own. In some ways, you didn't actually build that, right? I mean, you need to work with others. And so I think religious institutions have unique powers in this, mm-hmm. but it's not to say that they're the only ones, but the other ones that could be successful will still have to have that higher mission that draws mm-hmm. people out of themselves and is willing to commit time, talents, and treasure toward its fulfillment. Of a common purpose, yeah. right? That's so right. essentially the cure for loneliness is that we need to find a common purpose. And this goes straight back to e pluribus unum, right? This understanding that diversity qua diversity is not our strength. Diversity that seeks unity, while while not dismissing our diversity, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't this is just not simply a squashing of our diversity, but a diversity that seeks unity, that's our strength, right? Like Reagan said, you can go to Japan and never become Japanese, but somebody from Japan can come to America and be an American. There's something just awesome about that. And it's true, of course. Mm -hmm. So holding those things in tension, knowing that we are diverse and not arguing that we're not, or arguing that diversity is bad, Mm -hmm. that should never be the conservative perspective. But at the same time, not just saying that we should, you should recognize me only in my diversity. Mm -hmm. That if you try to force me into some larger mission, that you're forcing me to relinquish who I am. That's, that's the step towards radical individualism. And if there's anything that we're taking on here through the American project, it is radical individualism. Which is looking for your own self-interest over the communal good, right? Right, where self, where self-interest rightly understood just becomes mere selfishness. I think that that is a great place to leave it. <laughs> if people want to learn more about the America Project, I will be linking to it in the show notes. But is there a way that they can get involved or stay up to date with what you're doing? Absolutely. So we've just launched a new Facebook group for the American Project. So if you look up American Project and Facebook group and and sign up for it. We'll welcome you with open arms. Our AmericanProject.org site is actually a student project here for our grad students here at the Policy School. They're out there scouring the internets for communitarian type articles and, and research. And so if you'd like to see what other people are saying or writing about or researching, that's all up and, and regularly updated at AmericanProject.org. Excellent. Pete, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Hillary. Well, that's it for today's episode of Mod Pod. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Pete Peterson. And as always, if you liked it, please subscribe. And if you're on iTunes, please feel free to drop that five-star rating. I'll see you guys next week. Take care and stay safe.